Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome everybody back to the show. Today, we are going to be talking about balancing hormones. And my guest today is Dr. Patricia Mills. Welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to be here, Madeline. I've been really looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this because not going to lie without giving out my age. This is probably a highly relevant conversation, basically for anybody, I don't know, 30 plus, let's just say just to not like, you know, (laughs) I am here, but I think it's highly relevant. And I don't think we talk about this uh, topic enough. So like, not going to lie, I'm super personally interested in learning about this. Oh, I'm so glad. That means you're probably going to ask really great questions, which really fuel the conversation so well. Yeah. Yeah. So before we like dive into it, let's build some context for our listeners. Like tell us a little bit about you and like your background and, and then we'll dive in. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I think it's so important. So when you hear information, you get a sense of where it's coming from and like, you know, the, the foundational knowledge, you know, is it trustworthy or not? Um, So I'm a Western trained medical doctor. I trained at University of Toronto in Canada, and then went to did my specialty in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of British Columbia uh, in Canada as well. And um, I actually was doing work with people who had fairly significant neuromusculoskeletal diseases. So spinal cord injury, ALS, MS, multiple sclerosis, everything down to um, autoimmune conditions, really looking at the holistic rehabilitation of these individuals. And I was uh, also a researcher, published uh, over 25 publications. I think I'm hitting my 30th soon. And so I had this skill set of being able to um, look into the research and really determine like what's good quality research and what isn't and distill the essence of it. And I would do these systematic reviews where I try to explain the essence of a topic to the scientific community or to the lay person, right? So, uh, you know, everything was pretty good. Uh, And then what happened was I was on the spinal cord injury ward working as the doctor there where people have their spinal cord injury and they're still not yet discharged to the community, very complex medicine. And I received the worst call of my life where my dad had been diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And that's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, It's a fatal disease with no cure. The muscles just slowly start to uh, shut down, including your breathing, eating muscles. And so you pass away from this condition, right? And the average lifespan is around uh, five years or or even like maximal kind of lifespan because you can die pretty quickly from it or you can live a little bit longer. And you know, I just was so um, paralyzed at first, cried my eyes out for a few weeks. And what kept hitting me was, was the question why he was an Ironman. 
So he raced, he cycled, he ran, he watched what he ate. Uh, he was quote unquote healthy by all like uh, North American standards, right? And um, so it really came as a surprise because we had no family history. So as I was doing everything I could from him, for him from the Western medicine perspective, I just kept thinking, okay, there must be a reason, right? This doesn't just happen, okay? And I had some kind of idea that maybe it was related to like, um, maybe it was a lack of certain nutrients because there was some, when I went into the research, there was some research like on vitamin B12 and ALS, you know? So I started going deeper into nutrition because in medical school, we're taught minimal, 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 like macronutrients, you know, protein, fats, and um, carbohydrates. And it was when I started to do my own kind of continued uh, learning, you know, independent learning, which I find that in the world of Western medicine, you know, doctors are so busy. We're taught what we're taught. It's within a certain sphere of knowledge. And typically, it's only when you get sick or someone you love gets sick that you're really motivated to go beyond that because you're already pretty busy in your life. So to go beyond that, you need to have a pretty strong motivation, right? To spend like your extra hours, extra waking hours and prioritize it. So I dove into nutrition and as I dove in, my research skills became very um, helpful where I would like go down a rabbit hole of information until I felt like I had kind of exhausted and really understood it. And that rabbit hole would kind of span many different areas, actually. So instead of just being Western medicine, it would go into nutritional sciences and even health technology and um, ancient cultural wisdom in terms of how to properly prepare your food so that you actually have access to the nutrients that are in them all the way through to traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, all these things. So I found it so fascinating. And this research is being done by very good quality universities across the world. So it's there to be found if you have the tenacity and, you know, the patience to keep doing it, which I did, you know, very motivated by what was going on with my dad. And I started to, so I got to know nutrition pretty darn well. I'd say that's still like my big, you know, strength now. And as I was going through the research, I was finding other things like, you know, emerging health technologies, cutting edge science, understanding of body parts and organs that we weren't taught in medical school, like the microbiome in your gut, the glymphatic system that drains your brain and, and does a self-cleaning at night, like things were just not taught, but are super crucial and relevant to so many conditions we're experiencing these days, right? Hidden infections, those, those kinds of things. So as I was doing this deep dive, I started to notice that I was not in the best of health, you know, as a woman in my late thirties, uh, you know, many different reasons, like the stress from my dad. Now I realized I was eating what I thought was a healthy diet and actually was not a hormone supporting diet at all. It's yes. Label wise, it seemed very healthy to the standard American person, but it actually was not hormone supporting. And, um, you know, my, my natural systems of detoxification were kind of overburdened by factors like having uh, been on the oral contraceptive pill, plus a lot of processed foods. And these were things that at the time I didn't understand were causing problems with my detoxification systems, which are so important for hormone balancing because you detoxify your hormones through your liver and your gut, right? 
So I was getting sicker and sicker. And at the time, I didn't understand what do I mean by sick? I, I like to the external person, I looked well. So probably you can relate to this, right? Like anyone looking at you is like, you look super healthy. You look really well. And inside you're thinking, you're feeling like, you know what? My energy just isn't the best. My menstrual cycles are off. Um, you know, I'm just, my skin isn't looking the way I, it used to in the way I know it could, you know, my weight is certainly harder to manage, even though I'm doing all the same things or I'm trying harder even, and it's just not responding. Right. My sleep is like, I can't fall asleep easily. I can't stay asleep easily. My hair is getting thinner. It's like a little bit drier, you know, all of these little things. And if you were to go to the doctor, the, the kind of doctor that I was right. They'd be like, oh, that's normal. That's um, aging. And um, and then so I was experiencing that and I was like, okay, this is normal. This is aging. My menstrual cycles are like so terrible, like hemorrhagic, bleeding heavily. I happen to be the kind of menstrual cycle irregularity where I get really painful. Like I would have to chew ibuprofen for four days to deal with my menstrual cramps just to get out of bed, you know? And then it was when things started happening with my skin and my weight. So like my, I started getting rash on my skin, like a dermatitis for me, other people, it shows up as acne or rosacea, you know, like there's different ways that this shows up in your body, but the skin is like a, a mirror of your internal organs, basically. And my weight, like I had had children and I just couldn't kick the weight. You know, I felt puffy and I just like, it didn't feel, I felt like I was wearing an extra layer on me that didn't belong. And I just so badly wanted to just peel it off. Right. So as I was researching things for my dad, I started paying attention for to woman's health. And because I am a woman, I really understood it and I really wanted to get to know it. And so I finally, as I was reading more about hormones and the way that they're interconnected in the body, because in medical school, we're taught about like, here's the ovaries, there's a thyroid, there's the adrenal gland, there's the gut. And you actually have like separate people in charge of those organs. So if you have a problem with your gut, you go to a gastroenterologist and if you have a problem with your thyroid, you go to endocrinologist and those two are so intricately connected. So there's no like linking of the dots, like connecting the dots. So because I wasn't staying in one lane in, you know, I was really just spreading, casting a really wide net and so thirsty for this knowledge, I started to connect the dots and find threads of truth. You know, I would read a research paper with this kind of like open mind, just looking to see like what makes sense with the body as I know it. And, you know, what kind of adds to this picture that I'm building. And so I'm always adding to it. However, at this point, I feel like I know that I have enough information um, to change things around because I did it to myself. I totally changed my hormones. I rebalanced my hormones. I detoxified, like I, I supported my, I naturally supported my detoxification systems very intentionally. I did strategic supplements, right? I made some very crucial lifestyle shifts, which are very important. I became like really good at eating, reading and interpreting ingredient lists on food, which is actually the most important thing, not like the protein fat breakdown, but like, what's the list on your ingredient, you know, uh, the ingredients in what you're eating and how does that impact your body, you know, in a foundational way. So when I got the results for myself, I started to like share them with my family and my friends. 
And to those who were motivated, so there's a difference between getting the information and acting on it. And I found that the ones who acted on it were just so getting these amazing results. And then what happened was I was like, okay, well, I need to start sharing this in a more structured way. So then I started to do women's health online programs kind of on the side while I was still working in my Western medicine kind of role as a specialist. And I found that that was so rewarding and I loved it so much that I've actually at this point in time anyways, uh, left the Western medicine practice. So I was faculty at the University of British Columbia, like staff, assistant clinical professor. I've resigned from that. Um, I've, I've published my last study in the field that I was previously, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing that right now as we speak, actually to tie it up, you know, to do a final kind of collaboration. And I'm turning my focus entirely on women's health because, you know, when, when, you're, when your body feels balanced and your mind feels calm and focused, and every, every body part is working well and interconnected, life is easier in every way. And I just, I, because my life was so hard because of all of this for a period of time, I just want every woman to experience this. And I do believe it is our birthright and it's not our story. Yes, it's common for people to be feeling this way, but it's not normal. So I have a question. So that actually ties lovely into my question, which is, you know, can we, can we just kind of talk a little bit about life stages and like norm, like, because I think the way that I'm understanding, you know, is like, okay, I'm going to go into perimenopause and then I'm going to go into menopause and I'm going to have hot flashes and, you know, my vaginas may or may, you know, I may have some dryness there and like, you know, there's going to be these changes and like, their normal changes associated with perimenopause, menopause. Like, I think that's the message that we as women are kind of like, oh, you're in puberty, you're having a period. Well, that's normal for you to feel all these things. But is it? Like, like so can we just maybe like have a chat of like, okay, yes, these are some changes that are going to occur hormonally that like we expect these things to happen. However you know, what are normal symptoms and what are perhaps flags that tells us, hey, we need to take a look at something here? That's such a good question, because a lot of women don't even know that there's an opportunity to seek help and to feel better because they're experiencing what they've been told is normal. And again, what I would like to say is that having any significant issue, like, okay, let's dive into what that means. Okay. So like, it's, it's what I think is common is these issues that you talked about, right? Common is premenstrual syndrome, premenstrual tension, menstrual irregularities, increasing issues with it, with fertility. Um, and then having those hormonal imbalances that like change your libido, and then maybe even get you into menopause earlier. And then the menopausal transition is very rough and some silent suffering goes on or not so silent suffering. And that can last for like 15 years or like, you know, never seems to go away into menopause. That's common in the Western you know, world, but because a lot of the world is following Western ways of living, that seems to be increasingly more global. 
I, I was born in Brazil and I, I, when I go there, I see the changes from when I was a little girl to now that there's distinct changes that have happened to women and men, but I, of course, we're speaking of women. So what is, uh, what should happen? Like, it, so what happens is that what you need to understand is that the hormonal rhythms um, are um, created by a very beautiful kind of orchestra between many organs in the body, like the brain sends messages through hormones are messengers. They're like signaling systems. They would be like when we were mailing letters, they would be like the letters that you mail. And when the person receives it on the other end, there's instructions like, please clean your home or, you know, please do this work. Okay. So that's, that's basically, it's like your, your brain is like putting letters into your blood and sending it throughout the body. And it arrives at organs like the thyroid. It arrives at organs like the ovaries. It arrives at the adrenal gland and the thyroid makes the thyroid hormone, which regulates energy. The ovaries make the sex hormones like estrogen, which is like your fertility, baba, boom, curvaceous hormone, progesterone, which is your chill hormone um, and your pregnancy supporting hormone to be able to get pregnant and stay pregnant into the first trimester. Testosterone is like your libido and muscle mass hormone, which we do need as women, just not as much. And then the adrenal glands are super, super interesting because they make your stress hormone cortisol and kind of like your fight or flight hormone adrenaline, like that very quick, like that's really quickly run away from the tiger. And the adrenal glands are also capable of making the sex hormones estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, which becomes crucial in menopause when your ovaries retire and your adrenal glands take over. Okay. And the, those, all of those systems are interconnected. For example, the estrogen goes to the thyroid and tells the thyroid to pick up its activity. The cortisol, the stress hormone goes to the thyroid and basically shut, like turns down its activity. Okay. So you can become hypothyroid just from being overly stressed out because your body is asking the adrenal glands to make more cortisol to deal with that. Okay. And also the other connection there is that the building blocks and the building blocks for making estrogen and progesterone and testosterone are the same building blocks for making cortisol. And so if you are someone who is experiencing a lot of like physical or emotional stress and your body has to make a lot of stress hormone cortisol, what that do is it uses up the building blocks for those crucial sex hormones. And in a short period of time, that's not noticeable, right? Like if you have like, if you run a race and you make more cortisol to deal with that race, but then you finish the race and you calm your body down and you get back into relaxation response, your hormones are not unbalanced. It was a very short period of time. However, if it's day in and day out, that's what's, what's going to happen is you're going to be draining your progesterone that gets hit first. And then over time, you're unbalancing your estrogen and testosterone. So that leads to hormonal imbalance. That's the stress portal. Okay. So I, there's two major portals to unbalancing your hormones. Okay. There's actually three major portals. One is the stress pathway, which I just explained. Okay. And I, I'll go into the other two portals, but I want to tie this, what I just explained to what you said, because what happens is that 
If you have really beautiful coordination of the brain, the thyroid, the ovaries and the adrenal glands and the gut, the gut is an endocrine organ. It's a it's an organ, like a body part that makes hormones. Actually, it makes a ton. It's it's often the most hormone producing organ in your body. Okay. Which is kind of mind blowing, not something we're taught in medical school. Okay. So if there's really good, if they're each individually healthy and they're talking to each other properly, like uh, if you have a company, you want each worker to be healthy and communicating properly, right? So you need both things happening. What happens is, as let's say you're that individual where everything is really working very well. When you're young, you go into um, puberty and your transition into puberty is like, oh, I've, I've got my period, right? And your breasts are growing and your hair is forming. And typically it's not like too young, right? So like what's too young? Well, it used to be that like it was around 11 to 13 was like pretty normal puberty age. Now it's becoming more common to have younger puberty in women and actually later in boys, okay? But younger in women. And there's lots of reasons for that, but that's not, that's common, but not normal. And then you're supposed to have a very, like, there's fluctuations in the month that are cyclical. And it's like, if you look, if you think of like um, a tide where there's an up and a down and up and a down, and it's not that down is supposed to be bad. Being on the low tide is not a bad or a good thing. It's simply being on the low tide, you know? Um, and what that experience might feel like normally is your hormones are at your lowest point uh, when you're menstruating. So hormonally, uh, you're at your lowest point. What that means is energetically, you tend to be more like in inward focused rather than outward focused. So like less energy, quote unquote, but not in a bad way, more of like inward focusing. You're more like a little bit more withdrawn from the world, a little bit more paying attention to what you're thinking and how you're feeling and, and kind of assessing what your needs and then you're sort of protecting yourself from over scheduling because you are a little bit lower energy. So you would like take a break a little bit from things like you wouldn't exercise heavily. You know, you would maybe do some like walking in nature versus like big, strong, you know, big runs, which you would save for your like high tide, which is your ovulation, which is in between the two menstrual periods. Like when you menstruate to the when you next menstruate between that roughly is when you ovulate. And that's your, that's when your hormones at your, are at your highest point. And so you have your highest energy, your, your most energetic and magnetic. And that's when you're most likely to feel like connecting with others, like being, you know, hosting dinners or going out for parties or that kind of stuff. Right. So there would be this natural ebb and flow in your energy, which you would know and respect, like in the ancient traditions, they would have what's called the red tent. Right. And sometimes we've given that some negative connotation, but actually it, it was a beautiful practice where women had a place where they could withdraw to and kind of rest, right? And, and take a break at a time when their energy was lowest and they were, you know, just didn't feel like being around a lot of people and doing a lot of work. So it was like, kind of like a nice little break. You could think of it that way. Okay. So it's like, we have our like, you know, a figurative kind of red tent time. And then what would happen is that you would normally like, you know, have your menstruation. It wouldn't be painful. It would bleed. It wouldn't be too dark or too spotty. You know, it'd be like a nice flow for the first couple of days. It would be heavier and then it would peter off and it would last. So around five days from the first day of bleed to the last day of bleed, 
you might experience like a twinge of like discomfort around the abdominal area, but not anything painful. And, um, and then that would go away. And then as uh, the further you would get away from your period towards your ovulation, your energy would be climbing, climbing, climbing. Okay. And then you would burst out in energy. It's like the summertime of the month, you know, back into the winter time. Okay. During menstruation. So that would be your kind of like, that would be a normal experience, right? So no PMS, no irregularities. You'd be pretty predictable, no in-between spotting, right? That's normal. And then around the age of like 50, right? 50, 55 or so, you would start to notice some changes. So your periods would start to become more irregular. You might notice like a few um, energetic shifts, like instead of like these big ups and downs, it might become more gentle, like a tiny little wave instead of a big tide, which is actually like cool because you're kind of becoming a little bit less, um, you know, up and down and kind of a little bit more steady. So in a way it would be like stepping into a new higher power and in a different kind of way, like a new phase in your life. And, um, and you might notice like, yeah, you might notice your skin's looking a little bit different and maybe your weight's a little bit different, but actually it, it normally what happens is that at that time, the ovaries start to retire and the adrenal glands take over. And if the adrenal glands are healthy in that they have not been overburdened with the task of producing so much cortisol, they would be up to the task and there would be a period of adjustment, just like you have a new employee. And an old employee is like, here's how you use the Xerox machine or the fax machine. And, you know, it's like, oh, God, like here comes the fax machine. This is really hard. So at first, it's, there's a period of adjustment. And then after, you know, a few years, maybe a couple of years at most, you know, the, the adrenal glands would take over. And if you look, if you were to like imagine a chart, your hormones would be like at a certain level fluctuating up and down and they would drop a little bit. It'd be a little bit of a roller coaster ride, but then it would settle out at a lower point than before, but not down in your boots low. And it would be balanced. Because the thing about hormones, it's not so much how much you have, it is important, but it's how much you have relative to each other. So some people speak about estrogen dominance. And that's like a kind of a late term word, like doctors don't really like that, because you can actually have like low estrogen, and but have more estrogen than you have progesterone. And so you're like in estrogen dominance, but, you know, you know, strictly speaking, you still have a lot of, like, you still don't have a lot of estrogen. Right. And so with you, with a good, healthy menopause, you would have this like kind of like relatively smooth transition into menopause. It would be different in terms of less like big fluctuations in your energetic kind of state. Um, And after a year of not having a period, you're technically menopause, like you're in menopause. Okay. And, um, and you, and there would be shifts that you would do, um, like you would be, um, uh, better at certain things, right. For having this like new kind of like untethering to this monthly cycle. Um, and, and, and other things would be different. Like you would, you would no longer be fertile. Right. Um, and then there are certain things like in, in the ancient traditions, they would have certain, things like um, natural lubricants, right? For a little bit of vaginal dryness and that kind of stuff. So you would be using these tools 
to compensate, like you do oiling of the skin to help the skin stay moist, because you do tend to do a little bit of drying out, right? And like in Ayurveda, do they do the like oil packs for the hair, right? So you'd be doing these things to compensate for a little bit of the dip, but it would be, it wouldn't be like super drastic like it is these days, you know? And the thing about hot flashes is very interesting because hot flashes, for example, happen when if you pay attention, hot flashes tend to happen when you're in cortisol dysregulation. So usually in a time of stress. So something has like mentally or physically stressed you out and that triggers a hot flash because actually hot flashes are, are known to be due to the brain um, being active in a certain way in terms of physical or emotional stress. And that creates a cascade of hormonal changes, including increased cortisol. And that generates a hot flash when you're going through all of these other menopausal changes. So if you're someone who has really good um, stress coping mechanisms and you've been employing them for a while, um, you know, and you've, and you've kind of like have some grounding in terms of trust, you know, in the universe and that kind of like, for some people, it's a spirituality, just a sense that everything is happening as it should. And you've got your breath work and meditation and you have all those things. You're way less likely to experience things like hot flashes because you're less likely to be triggered by an external event um, in a negative emotional reaction kind of way, which will then cause this brain to uh, adrenal gland signaling that then generates experiences like a hot flash. It's so interesting. I wanted to just pop in here because <clears throat> you obviously know I'm, I'm, I'm training in somatic work and it's so interesting when I have my personal sessions and we're working with nervous system dysregulation. Like I, you know, I have most of us are going to experience some form of trauma or stress, post-traumatic stress that we hold, hold on to. Maybe not necessarily traumatic, but post-stress um, dysregulation. And it's so interesting because as I go through sessions and we move through, you know, we're looking for those temperature changes because those are cues of sympathetic activation. And so when I'm working through something and I'm starting to really kind of go into the stress of the experience or the memory or whatever, I will get what feels like a hot flash. I will say like, I am sweating here. Like it is really hot. And it has this like quality of like a, like a whooshing upward kind of, you know, like it, like the heat comes somewhere from the core and it just whooshes up and I just start to get hot and agitated. And that's like, and, and that signals to me, oh, there's some sympathetic activation here. And then as we move through the session and we begin to regulate the nervous system, then I'll start to notice, oh, I'm not as hot now or my temperature, like, you know, there's not sweaty now it's cold and clammy or, you know, I'm noticing, you know, my hands are changing and those are physiological signs that I, you know, will look for when I'm working with the nervous system. So I just thought that was really interesting because I've experienced that just sitting, doing nothing, like, doing a somatic session and all of a sudden, whoosh, what feels like a hot flash. And I'm like, is this a hot flash or is this just like me working through a thing here? Yeah. You know, it's so cool that you shared that experience because it really just brings home the point that 
we can experience, um, you can like experience a hot flash when you're younger. The difference is that you have a lot more hormonal reserve and it would take a more intense experience, like what you're talking about, where you're, you're intentionally going into, you know, that discomfort, that emotional reaction, and then you're healing yourself out of it with these tools. Women who are in menopause, like perimenopause, um, they're sort of going through times when the, remember I said that kind of roller coaster. So sometimes your hormone reserve is really low, right? Cause the adrenal glands are like not having yet picked up the baton. Right. And then you have this emotional stressor. And if you've never learned how to deal with it, you just go right into that emotional reaction and experience. And that means that the part of your nervous system that is responsible for dealing with emotional and physical stress, which, as you mentioned, is your sympathetic nervous system, will go into dominance. It'll go into like ascendance. And there's a cascade of bodily events that occur when that part of the nervous system is activated. Um, as a specialist in spinal cord injury, I was an, I am, I was, I am an expert in the nervous system because when you are treating humans who have had physical disconnections in their nervous system, you get to see how it all plays out. And these individuals have very um, pronounced problems with sweating and temperature control, and they'll experience hot flashes and cold sweats and just like drenching sweats, you know, and it does relate to the nervous system and the nervous system is tied to the hormones, to the, their direct connections from the brain to these, um, or hormone producing body parts, these organs, these glands, right? So there's a chemical connection with the hormones. And then there's a direct physical connections with the nerves that kind of grow out of the brain and the spinal cord and travel to those organs and directly like interact with them, right? So someone who has really good um, nervous system regulation and has really good methods of dealing with stress, they are going to have a way better experience um, in their uh, menstrual cycle phase of their life and their perimenopause phase, as well as in their menopause phase, because they're going to be less likely to overactivate their adrenal glands and cause this like cascade of hormonal and, neuro and neurological events. I wanted to come back really quickly uh, because you mentioned that there are three systems and we were talking about the stress system impacting. And I'm trying to like take my memory and I'm like, I don't think we've talked about the other two. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what it is, is that I didn't want to stray too far from your original question. And now we will dive into the other two. So the first one is stress. And for some people that's like stress and spirituality, right? Like if you, if you don't have an inner trust that everything is happening for your best and highest good in every moment, you're going to be stressed out. <laughs> so there's that part. And that's a deeper dive. However, what the other part is, is, is strategic nutrition. It's hormone balancing nutrition. It's discovering that the foods that you eat are not about calories. Yes, they, they are, there are calories. And if you're eating too little, or if you're eating too much, then that calorie will definitely have like extreme impacts, but we are in them kind of like that, not in the extremes. 
it's not the calories that impact hormones. It's um, what the calories come with, like how the body processes the food and the hormonal impact that the food has on it. So for example, okay, um, I'm going to introduce a new hormone into the mix, which is the hormone insulin. And that's the blood sugar hormone. So insulin does a lot of stuff, but what we're going to focus on here is the fact that when you eat something that has a carbohydrate, okay, um, it gets broken down into sugar, right? Uh, or glucose, you know, but we'll call it sugar because that's a fun word to use. And it gets a, put into the blood, you know, from the gut into the blood through the lining of the gut. And when it's in the blood, there's like sensors in our body that says, oh, look, there's sugar. Let's tell the pancreas to make insulin and the insulin is made and the insulin is like a key uh, that goes into the cells, like with the, the sugar is used within the cells. It's not helpful in the blood, right? It's helpful when it gets into our cells. And in order for it to get into our cells, there needs to be a key to unlock the cell door. Okay. And the cells are like the little bits that make up all of our tissues. So you open the cell door with the insulin key and the sugar rushes in and then your blood sugar levels drop down to like normal, right? So they rise with food and they come down. So if you're eating um, like what's what I like to call slow carbohydrates or complex carbohydrates would be another way to call it is that that's food from like vegetables, um, some fruits that are not too sugary, you know, like, um, apples are good, you know, like examples of good fruits, uh, avocados are fruit, tomatoes are fruit, but you know, like, uh, apples, um, that kind of stuff, uh, dates, figs, all that stuff, blueberries, berries, they, and whole grains. Okay. And when I talk about whole grains, we're talking about like a white basmati rice, an oat, millet, teff, amaranth, wheat, but I'm not talking about the flour, okay? I'm talking about the grain when it is whole. It hasn't been turned into a flour yet. So it is still packaged in its fibrous kind of shell, like in the fiber, okay? And what's interesting is that when it's still packaged, so when you eat like a white basmati rice uh, or like a rolled oats that hasn't been turned into an oat flour, the response in the blood sugar uh, is totally different. So when you eat it whole, um, you, the baby, the body has to take time to break it down. Cause it's not a flower hasn't been broken down for it. So it takes time to break it down. And as it's slowly broken down, it's the blood sugar slowly increases. So there's like a slow increase in blood sugar. So then there's like a nice slow release of insulin. And because it's slow, you never reach like a big peak. Again, it's like a nice low kind of wave rather than a massive big tidal wave. Okay. And so uh, when you stay within a certain range of insulin, not getting made too much and too quickly, that creates a balance of hormones. That's a hormonal balance in the body. When you eat um, fast carbs, which are um, everything I just talked about has been, has been processed in some way that now makes it way too quickly absorbed by the body. So if it's a whole grain, that would be like the flour. So a rice flour, a wheat flour, an oat flour, an amaranth flour, a quinoa flour, chickpea flour, okay? All of those are highly processed to turn into a flour. They're, they, they work like a fast carb where when you have that, your blood sugar quickly spikes up and goes up above the threshold that you would want, which means that the pancreas has to pump out a whole bunch of insulin because sugar in the blood is very damaging. The body does not want sugar in the blood. It's very sticky and it sticks to things and it damages things. 
So it does everything it can to get into the cell. So it'll just pump out a bunch of insulin. Like, so your insulin levels go really high and then your blood sugar rushes into your blood, into your cells. And because there's massive amounts of insulin, the sugar rushes in and then your sugar crashes down really low. So it goes from being really high to really, really low. And when your blood sugar is really low, that's a physical stress for the body. What will happen is your body will make cortisol, the stress hormone, to cope with it. So now you have two hormonal dysregulations. You dysregulated insulin and you dysregulated cortisol. And remember, if you dysregulate cortisol, you imbalance over time, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, right? So you could see how if you're having fast carbs for breakfast, lunch, uh, you know, dinner, snacks, you're going to be going into this like insulin and cortisol kind of yo-yoing effect, which then affects your sex hormones. Okay. And the thing is that it's so sneaky, these fast carbs, for example, if you take a fruit and you turn it into a smoothie, that's a fast carb now. Okay. If you take a vegetable and you turn it into a smoothie, it's a faster carb, but vegetables naturally have less sugar. So it's less likely to be an issue. Okay. Um, interestingly, uh, even healthy packaged foods like protein bars, they have a lot of hidden sugars. There's about 56 different words that exist for the word sugar on ingredient lists. So it's like maltose, dextrose, um, high fructose corn syrup, which is one of the most damaging kinds, um, agave nectar, coconut nectar, right, brown rice syrup, you know, like all of these things that sound so really healthy. sneaky. I'm just sitting here and I'm like, that's sneaky, sneaky. I know. I know. And the thing is, it's no one did, sat down at a, like a chemistry branch and said, we're going to dysregulate women's hormones. They were like, we got to make this stuff tasty and it has to last long on the shelf. Right. So they put it in there and there was like a low fat craze at one point. Right. And if you take out fat, it just doesn't taste good. So they had to add more sugar. And the thing is you need healthy fats to make hormones, the building block for progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, cortisol is cholesterol. If you go far up enough in the chain. So here we have this double whammy of like not enough fat in our diets. And now research is showing that a low fat diet increases your risk of death, death of all causes. Okay. So we're recovering from that. Like it's emerging science and people are starting to kind of like healthy fats are good, you know, get your healthy fats. in so you can build your brain, which is 60% fat, build your nerves, which are mostly, which are completely fat encapsulated, right? Like electrical wires with the insulation, that's fat is the insulation of your nerves. Every single cell is made of fat. That's the membrane, fatty membrane, right? So here you have this kind of double whammy where you're like looking for the low fat options now, and it comes with like the simple sugars. And the thing is the words are so deceptive. This is why you have to learn how to read ingredient lists. Cause if it says organic, or if it says natural, or if it says smart, it doesn't mean it's good for you. Okay. Because a, a, a brown rice syrup is natural and it can be organic. And so can uh, agave, you know, nectar and coconut nectar, but those, those are fast carbs and they will spike your blood sugar. Right. And, um, and you'll get into that insulin cortisol dysregulation and that itself can lead to problems with menstrual cycles, fertility, perimenopause, menopause. And the thing is like, 
flower products, like people are really into um, having like oat flour or chickpea flour because they're afraid of their gluten, right? Which is a fast carb, like the flour-based wheat flours, but all of the other flours are not necessarily better, by the way. And gluten-free products are just full of sugar because they're flour, you know, with rice flour, all these things, and they add sugars to make them taste good because they don't have gluten, which is like a really nice kind of textural thing, right? And you don't have that. And um, fruit juices, like kids are being given fruit juice. It's not seasonal anymore when the fruit is fresh and you squeeze it and you drink it out of a cup, right? Unpasteurized and just completely raw enzymes and all that good stuff. Now it's like through the year, very pasteurized, very sugary, even if there's no sugar added, it's not, it should not be something that you consume throughout the year. It should be fresh seasonal juices. And we've gone away from that into a year, you know, and I see children who are displaying signs of hormonal imbalance at a pretty darn young age. I mean, type two diabetes is the worst kind of outcome of that. And you're seeing that just rampant everywhere. Um, so it's not just, you know, in your thirties and onwards, it's where I'm seeing it in very young children. Right. And because I know what to look for, I'm seeing it unfortunately quite a bit. And so, and then it's like the sugary cereals, it's the granolas, everyone's into granolas, you know, and, and but it's full of sugar. And if it's not made the right way. Um, so anyways, it's, those are kind of like tend to be the sneaky bits is the smoothies, the granolas, the protein bars, the health, like the health foods, you know, quote unquote, the gluten-free foods. Um, and that's kind of like, I was like having my smoothie every day and I would have like my granola and I would have like my whole wheat toast, you know, and just like, or my whole wheat pasta and, you know, and it's just interesting to me that I definitely was one of those people where I thought I was eating healthy, but my body was trying to tell me otherwise. <laughs> And I just didn't know to listen until I started to find the information that brought clarity to that issue. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm just like, you just have this really great way of like using examples and metaphors to like bring this all together. And I'm sitting here going like, why the F? Okay. I'm going to try not to swear on the podcast. <laughs> okay. So I'm just say, why the F like, are we not like, how is this not, how is this not being taught to us? Like, you know, I consider myself just like you said, a pretty healthy person, um, which made me curious about the type of smoothie I used to make, which was um, just romaine lettuce, spinach, half an avocado, lemon juice, um, it called for a little bit of stevia. So I put a little stevia in it and then it was just like water. I'm kind of thinking, well, that was probably not as bad because it had no fruit in it, but it was, it would still be considered a faster. Um, that actually would be pretty good from the, um, fast carbs perspective that would be getting more into the third pathway, which is the gut pathway. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll chat about that. But I just wanted to just say, like, as you're talking, I'm like, oh, I'm probably not eating as healthy, you know, and like people think I eat pretty healthy and I, I consider myself eating pretty healthy. Um, but I think just like what you, just like the like these little things you've said, I'm just like are now going to be like, OK, I need to like rethink 
some of the things that I'm doing or how I'm prepping the food. And it's so interesting. You're talking about like berries and stuff because my mom last year went and picked elderberry and she prepared it and she made an elderberry syrup. And then we would add just like water to that. Um, My mom comes from a farm in Poland and like, you know, we really started getting into this whole idea of like foraging and like looking at foods and like prepping them and like honoring the plant. Like, it's just, I'm also a cult, cult, like I'm also an anthropology background. So, and minor in indigenous studies or the indigenous peoples predominantly in Canada. And I just like loved kind of their conceptual model of health and looking at different cultures. And, you know, we would think, oh, they're so, you know, primitive or whatever, you know, like all the things we used to think about that. And, and I just sit there and I'm like, there's such ancient wisdom here that like science now is like tapping into, like they didn't have the scientific words. They just, they knew, they knew through their wisdom, through their, you know, development. And like, what we really need to do is kind of go back to some of those old ways, like in a new way, right? Like everything old becomes new, but like, we need to be taught some of this stuff and we need to go back and like get reconnected with where food comes from and how it's made. And, you know, I got a garden going this year. Like, I don't know how to garden, but I'm going to start to learn. And, you know, I come out there and I water and I'm taking my eggshells and I'm breaking them up to give them, you know, foods and stuff. And I think we just really need to like reconnect to some simple, simpler ways, but I'm just really mind blown right now. And uh, let's talk about the gut pathway. (laughs) That was so good because you basically set me up to talk about my next topic, which I love when the podcast is in flow. It's like, woo, everything's in the flow. So yeah, you know, um, that ancient traditions of proper food preparation is so my jam because when I started to um, look into like, okay, so I'm going to cut out these sugary foods, processed foods, and I'm going to introduce whole foods into my diet. Um, you know, I came across um, a book, which many of you may have heard about, which is the plant paradox by Dr. Stephen Gundry, right? And he talks about lectins. And I was, I was like, okay, so I went into the research, because I, I don't like to just take things for granted, you know, at face value. And interestingly, lectins are um, a, a, a family of molecules made by plants and I'm going to call them anti-nutrients. And lectins is just one of like a, a large family, which is plants, including whole grains um, and vegetables, not so much fruits, but mostly whole grains and vegetables. They make them, they make it inside of themselves to protect themselves from being overeaten by insects. Okay. And the thing is, if you um, go back to like um, traditional methods of um, how people would eat, it would be um, a lot of happy animal meat. Like um, what I mean by happy animals, like for uh, ranging, you know, like clean kills in the forest or, you know, raised on a farm outside and pastured and, you know, free range, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and they would eat their vegetables and their grains, but they would properly prepare it. They would, they would take time like quinoa. For example, if you go to Peru, you don't just take quinoa and boil it and eat it. It's like a three-day preparation process. I'm from Brazil. You don't just take beans and put them in a pot and cook them. You soak them for like at least overnight rice, white rice, right? 
first of all, why is it white? Um, it's white because they take the husk off, so it's no longer brown, because the husk contains a lot of anti-nutrients. That's where the anti-nutrients are. It's usually the husk or the skin or the seeds because that's the first layer of defense that the plant has against the insect, right? So they would take this um, you know, white rice and they would soak it. Same thing in Asia, you soak it. And then after about eight hours or so, you rinse it until the water comes clean and then you, and then you cook it, right? Same thing with beans, you soak it, you rinse it, you cook it. So there's all of these um, ancient methods of food preparation because they knew that these, these anti-nutrients that are found in our plants, when you eat them in large amounts and consistently day after day, what they actually do at the level of the gut is they damage the gut, okay? And because we are larger than insects, it takes longer to see those effects. But I, I commonly will um, meet people who have like gone vegetarian or vegan or increase, like they try to go healthy and they increase the consumption of whole foods, like non-processed foods. And they're okay at first and they're feeling great because they've gotten rid of the crap. However, they're slowly damaging their gut and they run into problems with like, bloating or constipation or diarrhea, um, or like a funny kind of weight gain around the belly area, you know, like there's these kind of issues that start to pop up because those are signs that your gut and or your gut lining is not being properly, um, you know, protected. And I'm going to give one example just to kind of blow your mind. Cause sometimes you have to go a little bit deeper to really anchor a point nuts, right? Like so healthy and, you know, a handful of nuts a day keeps the doctor away. However, if you don't um, soak your nuts to start the germination process, the sprouting process in the nut, what happens is that the nut, um, if you just get it like off of the floor of the forest or whatever, right, it has a compound in it called um, phytic, uh, phytic acid. And phytic acid is basically um, two um, minerals like together, like uh, it's inositol and, and um, I'm blanking on the other one. I don't think it's zinc. Inositol and something else, okay? And inositol is like a really, really lovely compound for your body. In fact, people with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, are told to take inositol because it's really good for hormone balancing. And when the inositol and the mineral are bound together as phytic acid, it doesn't get broken down in the gut and it goes into the next part of the gut, which is the small intestine. Um, so it's like you, you have yours, you eat, there's the esophagus, your gut, the small intestine, the large intestine, which goes around your belly, and then you poop out through your rectum, right? And after your gut is a small intestine, which is the very delicate tissue of your gut, where all of the absorption of your food and nutrients is supposed to happen primarily. Okay. And that very delicate uh, lining of the gut, um, when, when phytic acid hits the lining of the gut, it actually damages, it changes the way that the lining of the gut works, like the integrity of it. So the lining of the gut, if you think of it like a coffee filter, right, you want like, you want to have the nutrients that are properly broken down seeping through. So it kind of seeps through into your body, like a nice kind of, you know, like a watery substance. And you want the crud, the stuff that isn't broken down to stay in the gut and you poop it out, Right. What happens though, is that the phytic acid actually destroys the lining of the gut so that now instead of having a nice intact coffee filter, there's like rips in it. So now things that are supposed to get, that can only get through like iron, iron can only get through the gut lining. It can't get through like a leaky part of the gut lining. It needs a specific transporter to transport it into the body. So one of the early signs of, of a problem with um, this gut damage or leaky gut is like the like the 
common term, but the medical term is increased intestinal permeability, where more things are getting through. It's more permeable. That's a medical term. One of the early signs is you start getting things like iron deficiencies, like low iron or, or like uh, anemia, right? Because you're just not able to get your nutrients from your gut into your body through that gut lining because the gut lining has been damaged. So the gut lining can be damaged by things like uh, these anti-nutrients. And when you soak a nut um, for a certain period of time, like it's at least six hours, ideally 12 hours, especially the bigger ones like walnuts and uh, pecans, that kind of stuff. The phytic acid, the, the act of sprouting, when it starts to sprout, there's a chemical transformation in the, in the nut because it's getting ready to become a tree, right? Like to sprout. And it breaks down the phytic acid into its two components, inositol and the mineral. And now not only do they not create damage, they are also, also available to be absorbed into the body so your body can use it. So it's like a double win. You don't hurt yourself and you actually gain nutrition from that. And you gain nutrition from all of your foods because your lining is intact. Now, it's interesting that we started with plant anti-nutrients, right? Because um, you mentioned the idea of like getting back. So if you, if you were to, if you're from like an, if you're an immigrant from another country into North America, as I was, if you go to your grandmothers or your great grandmothers, they'll tell you about soaking, sprouting, fermenting, pressure cooking, or cooking for long periods of time. If they didn't have a pressure cooker, there were multiple steps involved and some needed like significant steps. Like cassava is deadly. If you don't, kidney beans are, it can be, can kill like a raw kidney bean can kill you. It's got toxic stuff in it if you don't properly prepare it. Right. Um, however, what I would say that the primary problem that most people are having is that that leaky gut, that damage to the gut is happening from the chemicals and additives and preservatives in processed foods. Okay. Because the lining of the gut is protected by various factors. It's protected by a thick mucus layer and it's protected by the microbiome, which is like the buddies in our belly. They're like the bacteria and viruses and fungi and, you know, parasites even sometimes that live there. And when you're in, when they're healthy, you're healthy. And when you're healthy, they're healthy. It's like this really beautiful symbiotic relationship. We've co-evolved with them actually. Um, if you decimate your, your microbiome, you would get sick very quickly. Like, and, you know, and, and the studies show whenever they look at the microbiome, that a population that's healthy and a population that's unhealthy, like any population from autism to Alzheimer's, from multiple sclerosis to ALS to Parkinson's, they all have problems with the microbiome. We don't know what happened first. Did the microbiome get sick and we got sick or did we get sick and they got sick? We're inter we're intricately connected. And when the microbiome is, is um, hurt um, and des and it also, uh, because they are responsible for maintaining the integrity of that coffee filter, that lining of the gut, that injures our lining of the gut, okay? And so you can hurt them through having um, chemicals and additives and preservatives. And research has been done to show that they do harm the microbiome and especially preservatives, right? Because preservatives are meant to um, kill organisms, right? Keep them from spoiling the food while well, the microbiome are organisms. Our ancestors used natural preservation methods like fermentation, right? Canning, you know, those kinds of things. And then they would use like um, honey and jam, not sugar, but they would use honey and jams, right? So they had these different ways of preserving. And so the only preservative that I'm like comfortable with 
because it's really hard to like, it's hard to live in today's society. If you're getting rid of everything that has preservatives is if it's preserved with um, citric acid, which is like vitamin C, which is still not great, but it's better than sodium benzoate, for example. Um, you know, and then there's all of these other additives like potassium bromides, which are make our bread stay fresh on the shelf, like Franken foods, which are staying longer than they should fresh on the shelf because they are being uh, maintained with these chemicals. And they are, these chemicals are known to damage. Um, like it's hard to do the research on humans. Obviously the research is done on mammals. Right. And so it's interesting to see how, um, the parallels are definitely there. And when you go in and you assess the gut damage and the leaky gut and the, and the microbiome, it seems to be, it is the common pattern that every single disease has like this interesting association with a dysfunction at the level of the gut. Okay. And remember that the gut um, is responsible for being able to absorb all the nutrients that your body needs to make hormones, right? It is a hormone producing gland itself. The microbiome makes hormones and the gut lining makes hormones. So your hormonal balance will be off if the gut lining is damaged and if the microbiome is damaged. And if you don't eat enough of the right kind of fiber, like whole foods fiber, that the fiber is actually used by the microbiome. Our body cannot use fiber. We don't break fiber down. It's like a resistant starch, right? doesn't turn into sugar. It just stays in the gut. Our microbiome eats the fiber. And if you don't have enough fiber from whole foods, the microbiome starts to die off. And then uh, they don't like to die, just like we don't like to die. So they'll start to eat the mucus lining in your gut, which can damage the gut. And the thing is, if you, if you, if you're like, oh, I'm going to go and have like a metamucil, like this very processed fiber, for example, or like, you know, very refined fiber, too much of a good thing is a problem too, right? And you can actually develop problems with bloating because you're overfeeding your microbiome, right? And the sugar, it's not just that the sugar imbalances your blood, the sugar will cause certain organisms to overgrow like candida. Candida is meant to be in your body, by the way. Okay. It's when it grows out of control, out of proportion of what it should be. It's like any community. You don't want too many of like any community member. You want a well-balanced community. And so you need to keep your microbiome well-balanced. And the way that nature, we evolved over centuries, over you know millions of years, hundreds, thousands, thousands of years, and then over the last few centuries and our DNA has really not changed that significantly since about 20,000 years ago, right? And our evolution with, the, with um, the biggest evolution we ever made recently with the microbiome was when we went from hunters and gatherers to agricultural. And I'm fascinated by anthropology. If you look at the bones of the hunter gatherers and the agricultural, the same, there's an interesting study where they found burial sites of these two tribes, one was still hunter-gatherer and the other one had become um, agricultural like farming at the same time in the same place from the same genetical, genetic background. Just one group decided they wanted to like interior decorate their home. So they wanted to stay in one place. Like, I don't know why, but they decided to do it. Their bones are so much weaker and more brittle and smaller and they healed slower and they broke faster. You know, like when they studied those bones, whereas the hunter-gatherers were like these big, strong, robust beautiful bones that healed so quickly. Right. So really, um, my kind of like where the space that I'm at is really helping women as a woman's health expert, 
I help women through these podcasts and, and through my Facebook group, Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, my podcast, Wild Wisdom, and my Instagram account uh, at dr.patriciamills, I am constantly sharing this wisdom and approaching it in different ways and giving examples, particularly my Facebook group of like, how do you eat ketchup? You know, uh, how do you, how do you have like ketchup with, for your kids and barbecues in the summer without throwing off your hormonal balance and that of your kids. And the cool thing is that there are solutions. Some of them actually are pre-made for us, like convenience foods. Uh, and some of them you have to do yourself, you know, like, which um, requires a little bit more advanced planning. Like if you're going to soak something, you got to think about it the night before or that morning, right? Like this morning mm -hmm. I took my rice and I soaked it. So, cause I'm going to cook it tonight. Um, but then the actual act of cooking is not that different. So two things. One was a question regarding the um, nuts. So because I, I like to prepare this breakfast meal, um, which is like uh, rolled oats with coconut um, milk and almond milk um, and cinnamon. And I use pecans and almonds with that. You're saying that I should soak those for 24 hours ish and then cut it up and then put it in like, and then I could put it into this, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you case, exactly I'm what like, you have to do actually. Yeah. So there's a few missing steps that'll make all the difference for you there. First of all, you have to soak your oats, right? So you have to take your oats the night before, put it in water yeah. Um, and soak it overnight. I like to put a little um, yeast probiotic in there that eats up all the simple sugars, like the, you know, like the loose flour. It's a Saccharomyces boulardii is the probiotic. You can buy it at any health food store. Just op open the capsule, put it in, and it just does a gentle fermentation as well, which is really nice because when, when that kind of yeast, which is a very healthy yeast for our body, eats uh, sugar, it poops out um, vitamin Bs. <laughs> So it becomes like not only soaked and starting to sprout the oat, like germinate, um, which releases the oat nutrients and decreases the oat anti-nutrients because oat has anti-nutrients as well. Then the next day you can drain it if you want, or you can just take that cooking, wa that water and use it as your cooking water. Okay. So that's first, you have to soak your oats. Mm. The next thing is in order to properly prepare nuts, you have two options. You can leave, you, you soak them overnight, which is 12 hours or over the day. You put in a tablespoon of sea salt into the water, okay, which, um, and if and if you're worried about mold, like some nuts are more mold prone, like uh, Brazil nuts, which are really high in selenium, which is great for your thyroid as an example, but they tend towards mold. So putting in like a one eighth of a teaspoon of baking soda will help um, get that mold under control. Yeah, I mostly use pecans in. and almonds. Yeah. Well, interestingly, pecans, um, I've come across a few batches, which like you, after a while you get used to looking and they're like, if they're a little bit sticky, mm -hmm. they might have some mold to them, you know? So that's something that you would want to do. And actually, if you put in uh, baking soda into your nuts, it doesn't do any harm. And if, and if you put in baking soda into your beans, it decreases the gas producing molecules. So that's kind of a neat tip because sometimes like beans, beans, you know, the fart yeah, yeah, the yeah. fruit, totally. but then you soak it. So you back to the nuts, you soak it. And then the thing is their nuts are kind of like gross when they're soggy. Um, if you're making like an almond milk yourself or a cashew milk, then yeah, you can take that and put it in the blender. You don't have to dry it out again. You just get it wet. 
Um, however, if you wanted to have it as an like a nice crunchy thing in your, you want to then put it on a glass baking dish, spread it out, turn your oven to the very lowest, lowest temperature, which for me is 170 degrees. So yeah, it's I think really that's low. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And you just let it sit there for the day or the night. Okay. And, um, and at the end of it, they should be um, crispy, like dry, really dry. Mm. And the nice thing is if you eat a nut before you prepare it compared to after the taste of the crispy nuts are, is like butter because mm. it has no more bitterness in it. The anti-nutrients, if you really pay attention, they taste bitter. Yeah. So, See, but you don't know because you would like think making this healthy breakfast meal. Uh, actually it's a, it's a JJ virgin, um, like recipe I got from her, except you're talking about like the food prep, like it just astounds me like the the wisdom that we have lost around food that like is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And that led me to the second point I wanted to mention. And I don't know if you've read about this, but I am so intrigued and fascinated by this book called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's by Robin Wall Kimmer. Um, so she is a Potawatomi. Uh, she comes from Potawatomi um, community uh, and she's a botanist, an indigenous botanist. And her book is like the teachings of the plants, but also teachings for how we like, it's not just to say, oh, you need to take care of the plant because this is what it does. It's like, she gives us advice on like how we can begin to reconnect with nature, reconnect with plants, reconnect with our gardens and, and all of these beautiful things. So that's a total side note for like book club. I think you would love it. I'm just like, just loving the stories and the information about plants. And that's like, that's, what's motivating me to like grow my you know, grow my thing. And, you know, and it brings me back to also like my Polish roots. Like we used to can everything. We didn't have refrigerators and like we had to keep our potatoes down in the cold cellar. And like grandma used to do this and like, I've lost that, you know, like I have no idea how to do any of that. Like, thankfully my mom does. And so like, I'm going to have to hit her up for that because now I see the wisdom of holding on to those ancient traditional wisdoms of us being connected to our food, connected to nature, because it, it is the greatest teacher. It tells us how to be healthy. And so she talks about like how to prepare, um, uh, what's the cattails and like all the different uses of cattails and how we can eat it and what it's really good for. And, and it's also medicine. And anyways, I think you would just love it. So that was a total side note and a plug for her book. Thank you. That's I'm definitely going to look into that because I love to geek out on that kind of stuff. Um, and what was, what's really cool is that, um, all of these traditional methods of preparation have been proven in research. So if you actually look for research that has been done on the effects of sprouting, soaking, fermenting, germination, all those sorts of things, it is astounding. Like it's all there. Like, you know, you decreased um, anti-nutrients by 80% when you do proper soaking, sprouting, and fermenting, you know, and they've measured those amounts, right? Um, and they've even done studies on like lentils. And a lot of the research comes out from India, actually, because India is a very plant-based country in general. 
So they're always very interested in knowing like, is this actually healthy for us and what's the best way to prepare? So a lot of really interesting research from um, Indian universities on these things. So I, I'm creating an all-in-one complete guide to proper food preparation because right now when I'm like helping people, I have to direct them to like five different resources, you know, to, and I realized that I, I really needed to make an all-encompassing one complete guide. So I can just be like, here you go. And then you just have that in your kitchen. And no matter the thing is a lot of the recipes that are out there, I notice are very quote unquote healthy, as you say, the, the breakfast recipe. However, if you don't properly prepare it over time, you're going to, you're probably going to run into problems. And I'm seeing a little bit of that happening in the health world where um, people in the health space are not presenting with like the best of health as they age. And I'm always curious about that because I don't like, I, you know, I, I want to, I'm always observing myself. Like, is what I'm doing, is my method working? Because if it's not working, I have to reassess my method. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just an interesting thing to notice. And so I think what the, one of the missing pieces um, is this proper food preparation because everyone's got the process, you know, don't eat processed foods kind of down, although people don't understand that it's actually very damaging at the level of the gut and the microbiome. Other things that hurt the, the microbiome is antibiotics and anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. So remember I was chewing ibuprofen, yeah. right? And the thing is you can't avoid antibiotics. I almost died from meningitis as a child. I had IV antibiotics for two weeks. Thank God for IV antibiotics. And I didn't know at the time, no one really knew that you had to replenish like recover from this event and replenish the microbiome and, and work to like rebuild the gut lining, which was definitely damaged during that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a run in with H pylori and I did the antibiotic route and it was interesting because I listened to um, a podcast that was talking about it being a very ancient gut microbiome. And in fact, highly protective against acid reflux and all kinds of issues. And something in my mind clicked and go, went, you know what? I actually don't need to annihilate you. I annihilated you. You came back because it was a whole slew of other things. And my whole approach was completely different. I went the natural route and so amazing how my body responded when I put all the lifestyle, I slowed down my work. I meditated. I gave myself rest. I took more time to prepare my food and spend time on my relations. And I took some supplements to support that. Um, but it's just so interesting because my naturopath was like, as soon as a doctor sees you test positive for H. pylori, you're going on antibiotics. And I was like, well, that's not helpful. Anyways, total sidebar, but um, I'm loving what you are talking about. Um, so we've gone over time and like, I'm totally fine with that. And we could probably jam this out for so much longer. And I didn't even, I literally asked you like the first question you've answered some of my other questions that I had, but like, this was the, one of the most intriguing conversations I have had in a very long time. But I want to know this because I can't be the only one right now. That's like, okay, when you prepare that food prep thing, I want in. So, um, what else do you have for people right now who are just like, I'm just loving what she's saying. I realize I know nothing. I would like to know more, like, where do people find you? How do they like work with you? How do like, how do we learn more? So thank you so much, Madeline. I really enjoy this conversation. This time just flew by, you know, it was so lovely. 
such great energy. Um, what uh, I have for you, the listener, uh, a free gift. It's my ebook that I poured a lot of love and heart and soul into it. There's a lot of amazing golden nuggets. And if you actually take this on and download the ebook and follow what I recommend, like if you have that motivation, remember I said those women that I saw the changes in, you have to take action. That's up to you, but the roadmap I provide Okay. And it's a wonderful place to begin. And for many of you, just downloading that ebook and following uh, what I recommend will be enough. For others, um, you may need more support. For all of you, um, what I would like to do is invite you into my private Facebook group for women, Wild Wisdom, Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, MD, if you're on Facebook. If not, make a fake, fake account and join. <laughs> and uh, I love to hang out on Instagram as well. Uh, at dr.patriciamills. Um, but I'll provide the link for the free ebook uh, to Madeline. And it's really foundational. It's a really amazing, very highly effective. Like we are busy women often without a lot of time. And you just want to make sure that the time you are dedicating is going to give you results. And I put in a lot of results driven, actionable strategies there, as well as the knowledge behind it. Because what I find is that while women want the action steps, they're more likely to take it. We are more likely to take action if we actually understand why, right? Yep. So, 100%. and that's my big thing is just, I, I, I love explaining things. So I'm on YouTube, Dr. Patricia Mills, MD, you know, and I just sit there and I love to just explain topics to people, you know, and, um, and give some, and give lots of actionable strategies. That is so amazing. Like I, I'm not going to lie. That's like what I'm going to do first because I'm absolutely uh, fascinated and I feel like in total alignment with like the way that you're approaching um, how like this whole idea of health and wellness. And I think we need to go back into like, you know, that really holistic mind, body, spirit, emotions, like all of that, like that, that's not like woo woo stuff. It's like rooted in science, you need to regulate your nervous system. You need to manage your stress. You need to get in connection with your emotions. You need community. We need people in our lives. It is so important for our health, food, connection back to nature, getting back to learning about plants, understanding how they work and what they have solutions for us. So like, I'm going to go download that thing. And so for anybody who's listening, all of that will be in the show notes. All the links will be there. The social media links, the link to the ebook, the link to, you know, YouTube, everything will be there. So highly, highly recommend people to have a listen. And Patricia, I just, um, I really want to thank you for this conversation. It's very timely for like where I am in my like exploration of health and wellness. And it just like this conversation just, I, I like, I just couldn't lean into the screen anymore on how interested I am. So thank you so much. Oh, uh, thanks, Madeline. It was absolutely my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me on your show and for introducing me to your lovely listeners. And uh, yeah, and I love following you on Instagram. Actually, I have a, a really good time with that. You're so magnetic and you love what you do and it shows. Uh, so thank you for what you do for women, which is so crucial and important as well. Yeah. Thanks again. And thank you for everybody who listened and please be sure to share this episode. Like this is like, this is, this is like the critical, like everybody 
you know, that has uterus and ovaries, like really needs to listen to this because it's just like such foundational knowledge. And like, we don't understand how all this works because nobody tells us. Well, Dr. Patricia is telling us all about it. So please share out the episode, follow her, comment with her, you know, do her stuff. And like, let's all live a, well, this is all about living a better life. So let's all live a better life. All right, my friends, we will connect with everybody at a later time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.